Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This week's book of the week is the recently released, but still not a violation of my no book buying rule because I pre-ordered it, Waco. David Crush, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage by Jeff Gwynn. And I had a hard time coming up with an accompanying cocktail until I remembered that I have this book, Mixology and Murder, cocktails inspired by infamous serial killers, cold cases, cults, and other disturbing true crime stories by Kiara Sorderecker. I hope I said her name. Sonderecker, sorry. And she has one in there for the whole Waco thing. It's called the Mount Carmel Martini which is three ounces of apple cider, two ounces of caramel vodka with caramel sauce, sugar, and apple slice to garnish. Um, I already pre, I, I did the sugar and caramel syrup downstairs because I didn't want to have that up here and that would just make, it was messy, so. But I already garnished, I pre-garnished the glass, so let's do this. The road that led to Waco starts well before Vernon Howell arrived on scene and changed his name to David Koresh. Uh, Waco actually starts 170 years before the tragic events of April 19, 1993, and nowhere near the great state of Texas. It actually starts in New York with Baptist minister William Miller, who became convinced the end times were near and predicted them to occur in 1844. When the world failed to end at the designated time and place, Miller's adherents decided maybe his math was just off in some way, and they branched off to form the Seventh-day Adventists. So... Where I leave off. In the 1920s, Seventh-day Adventist Victor Houtef, Houtef, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, who was determined basically just to obey God's law in all things, formed another splinter group of Seventh-day Adventists that they, he called the Shepherd's Rod, and took his devotees to Waco, Texas, where they purchased 200 acres of land to start preparing for the end of times. Uh, no date given when, for when those times were expected to happen, but they purchased this land and began preparing, and they eventually purchased more and more land. I think at one point they, got, they had over 900 acres, ultimately ended up selling off that acreage and purchasing the land just further south of Waco or in the area but no longer on the lake because the lake was premium land basically uh, and that acreage is where 1993 is going to occur. Now in between this move to Waco and the move to the other side of Waco the group would have several other leaders. Uh, Haltef during World War II reorganized again really emphasizing the group's connection to the Seventh-day Adventists in the hope of gaining religious exemptions to the draft and now called the group the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association which became forever known as the Branch Davidians or just Davidians for short. I usually get the mini bottles when I'm unsure about a new cocktail, but I read the ingredients and, and was like, oh, I'm gonna totally want more than one of these, so I'm just gonna get the big bottle. Okay. Now, when Hatef died, his young bride stepped up, initially claiming the same spiritual power of divination, uh, prophecy, whatever. But when her pronounced end date failed, Hatef had very wisely not provided an end date, but she stepped up, stepped up, said it was gonna happen in like 1952 or four, something like that. And when it didn't happen, eventually her followers lost faith in her. Ultimately, she left the group, remarried, and lived out her life in California. I think she died in 2008 or something like that. Into this void stepped Ben and Lois Roden. Ben Roden was the chosen successor. Let me shake this up real quick. I kind of want to note the recipe calls for apple cider, not sparkling apple cider. The difference is sparkling apple cider is um, carbonated. 
don't shake a carbonated drink. I learned that. I don't know, remember which video it was, but I shook a carbonated drink and it semi exploded on my computer. Well, that looks delightful. Let me do an apple wedge to garnish. Boom. A Mount Carmel martini. Where'd I leave off? Rodin. Okay. Chosen by those who stayed. He believed, they believed, and he believed that he had a spiritual vision, like literal visions, uh, to see the Davidians through their next hurdles. So he stepped up in 1955, and Rodin ran the Davidians for the next 20 years. Um, he died, I think, in 78, so 23 years, yeah. So when Rodin died, there was a very brief power struggle. His son, George, thought that it should be a direct descent by blood, sort of like a royalty thing, which was really not what the Davidians were about. They, they weren't shooting for royalty. They, they were shooting for spiritualism. It's... Oh, yeah, I was right. I'm definitely going to want more of these. Oh, my God. Mm. That's, um, I won't have many more of them because, you know, trying to lose weight, not drinking during the week because I want to lose weight. Mostly not drinking during the week, so I want to lose weight. Most of, but the rest of the group, so George thought it should be by direct descent. But the rest of the group was like, no, that's not how we work. Lois, your mother, Ben's wife, has had prophetic dreams, and we're going to choose her. Her prophetic dreams were essentially that the Holy Spirit was female, and that's why men and women were both divine. Hey, I am all for that, right? That is a, that's a great interpretation. I am in love with that. I could see where that would be an appealing thing for people to follow, especially women. Okay, so Lois stepped up and ran the Davidians in her death in 1986. Um, so she, she was in charge for about eight years. Now, in that eight years that she was in charge, Vernon Howell appeared at Mount Carmel compound in Waco. Now, Vernon Howell was born on August 17, 1959 in Houston, Texas, to teenage mother Bonnie Sue Clark. She was 14 when she gave birth to him. His father was not in the picture. Clark eventually remarried, but Howell was never really close with his stepfather. All reports about Howell consistently report that he was not a good student. Uh, not necessarily juvenile delinquent, but he probably had some uh, dyslexia, possibly ADHD. That wasn't really diagnosed back then. Uh, but he just, he wasn't academically gifted. He didn't enjoy school. Until he became involved in his mother's church and took to reading the Bible, which he promptly memorized. And make no mistake, this was not like some trick or gifted wordplay. He undoubtedly knew the Bible backwards and forwards. I mean, biblical scholars might, and in many cases do, disagree with his interpretation of the Bible, but all agreed that his quoted scripture is correct. Now, Howell had women problems pre-Mount Carmel, um, mostly that he liked them young. Uh, too young to be legal. In the 1980s, 1990s, the age of consent in Texas was 17, unless you were married. I, I don't know if that's changed. It might have. It's been 30 years. But back then, it was 17, unless you were married. Marriage under age 17 could only be done with parental consent, and you could not marry unless you were at least 14 years old. Don't know if that's changed, but that's what the law was back then. Now, the first time Howell got a girl pregnant, she was 15, and he was 19. Uh, it's actually, that's not as creepy, right? Only, only a four-year age difference. That's teenagers. I mean, I, that, that's, it's, it's going to get creepier, trust me. Now, in 1981, he made his way to Mount Carmel, and Lois Rodin quickly took him under her wing. 
I'm not sure if it's because of his knowledge of the Bible, his willingness to please, his overwhelming charisma, or what, but he became her protege and quickly the heir apparent, which George Rodin was really not pleased about this, right? I mean, he could sort of step aside for his mom, although not really. She, at one point, had to file a restraining order against him for the entire property because he was just very determined that he was the one who was supposed to step up. But he was really unhappy with Howell being the heir apparent. Now, ultimately, Howell did leave the compound briefly and set up a few miles away. But after Lois's death, things got dicey. Uh, George Roden was mentally unstable, and I, I mean more unstable than Howell was. So that's kind of saying something. And the remaining Davidians pointed out that there was still an existing restraining order against Roden for the Mount Carmel property. So George Roden was expelled, and Howell returned. And somewhere in there, a small gun battle ensued between them, and Howell was briefly in jail as a result of this. I don't remember if he was acquitted or if there were just no charges filed. Ultimately, that is in the book. I just don't recall what it said. Um, but Howell returned to Mount Carmel as the undisputed leader of the group. And somewhere around this time, uh, around 1990, he legally changed his name to David Koresh. Now the name change. That's odd, right? I mean, what's wrong with the name Vernon Howell? That's a perfectly good name, right? It's, I'm sure it's Christian. His mother was Christian, so I'm sure that was a Christian name. But why David? Why Koresh? I mean, David, I think, is probably obvious, right? Ties back to Davidian, King David. Uh, Koresh is, is the Hebrew name for the Persian King Cyrus. But again, why? Why the name change? So Jeff Gwynn provides a very plausible answer for the belief structure, the name change, everything. And it ties back to Lois. Um, and another 19th century prophet, this one unrelated to the Seventh-day Adventists. So we have Cyrus Teed, who was born in 1839. His initial goal was to be a doctor, but his real passion was alchemy, and he allegedly became the first alchemist to successfully turn lead into gold in October of 1869. Immediately after this world-changing breakthrough, he apparently didn't write the formula down because that has not been found, he took a nap and realized he'd found the key to immortality. He then had a revelation, quote, wherein a female agent clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. She informed Heed that he was to redeem the race but would die in the process. There would be a violent clash, a major event, and Heed would translate to a more godlike form and his followers would be among the chosen people to enjoy a new sinless and immortal life. Teed would be the Lamb of Revelations, that he would open the seven seals to begin these events. Teed also claimed to be the new incarnation of the Persian king Cyrus, Koresh. So there we have David Koresh. Now, if you watched any of the Senate and House committees post-Waco, read any newspapers, read any books about Waco, hell, if you watched the Paramount Plus series for Waco, which was on Netflix back in 2020, it's on Paramount Plus now, um, it was produced in 2018, all of that's going to sound familiar, right? The, the Lamb of God, the revelations, the seven seals to be broken, the major clash, the violent event, all of that's going to sound really familiar. All of those were mentioned in pretty much all of it. You couldn't, right? It's all familiar. You, you couldn't not talk and write about Waco and the events and David Koresh and not mention these things because it was so strongly tied into his uh, ideology. But where would Howell Koresh have heard of them, all right? My Koreshanity is what T called his book that he published, but it wasn't a well-known thing. This wasn't widely published. It was like a self-published thing. T died in Florida in 1908, so nowhere near Texas. 
Well, Gwyn, tra Gwyn traced that down for us and points out that there was actually a copy of Teed's book, Coruscanity, in the Waco Public Library. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's no way to know for sure if Lois read the book or even if Koresh read the book himself, although it was her revelation that the Holy Spirit was female, which was what Teed was also saying. So it seems likely she may have at least heard of the book. And for reasons he outlines in the book, Gwyn does not think that Koresh actually read the book himself, but he does think that Rodin read the book and coached Koresh on what to say to gain effective control of the Davidians on her death. She didn't want her son George to have control of the, the compound or the people therein. Part of that is because the brief time that he was in charge of the compound, he was renting out the room, the, the buildings that weren't being used, which was fine, but he was renting them out to like drug dealers and you methamphetamine know, production, stuff like that. Um, all of which Koresh did put a stop to. When he regained control of the compound, he called in the local police, had them come clean up, clean up the drug activity. I mean, the ATF tried to throw the drug thing into the search warrant and it was part of the search warrant but that would have been booted immediately because there was never any drugs at the compound that anybody's ever found or heard of uh, survivors of Waco say no we never, we never did drugs that was absolutely not allowed I mean, they're, they're, don't get me wrong they were not all bad people all right I think David Koresh was twisted and fucked but the the Davidians themselves were good people just trying to live their life and obey God's law and there is not a thing wrong with that there is not a thing wrong with it. I'm going to edit out the swear word. It is kind of rude. But now, whether any of that is true, or if David found the book on his own, or if he never read or even heard about it, Christianity, it's just, it's unknown. But the coincidence is a little too coincidental, right? I think he at least knew that the, about the story contained therein. Um, even if he didn't read it directly himself, I think that Lois told him about it and said, these are the prophecies, this is what you need to know. Uh, the two stories are just too synced for it to be coincidental. Regardless of whether it was intentional or accidental, the plan worked, and when Lois died after the brief power struggle with George, Koresh was installed as the new leader of the Davidians. And then he started bringing in followers, not masses, not never Jim Jones numbers, but the true believers who came and stayed formed a really solid core at Mount Carmel. Um, so solid that when Koresh announced his new light program, there, after brief spiritual struggles, they were all in. What's the New Light Program? The New Light Program is that celibacy would be practiced by the men at Mount Carmel, and this is going to be important, um, except for Koresh, who would accept the burden of sex on behalf of all of his followers. Uh, the men would be celibate, but Koresh is going to be having sex with all the women. They're, all the women are now his wives. So creepy and wrong. Um, and his followers agreed. So what does this mean in practice? He had one legal wife, which would be Rachel Jones Koresh. She was 14 years old when they married. He was 25. Again, this was legal under Texas law at the time because both of her parents, Perry and Mary Bell Jones, uh, consented to the marriage. They were both Davidians. They consented. They were highly honored that the leader wanted to marry their daughter. And the the guy who founded it, the Houtef, he was like 53 when he married his 17-year-old wife. So there's kind of a theme going on here. But now all the women at Mount Carmel are his wife, and he would have sex with all of them and impregnate as many of them as possible, because this was all part of God's plan, you see. The Bible said there would be 24 elders after the end times who would lead humanity back to righteousness, something like that. And Koresh said those 24 elders would be his children by the women at Mount Carmel. 
And Rachel Koresh agreed because she had had a dream that this was God's will. Or she was an easily manipulated young woman. I don't know. I shouldn't judge. It's not my religion. Maybe it's all true. Maybe it's all true, right? Not everyone agreed. And those who didn't began planning their escape from Mount Carmel, essentially. Included among those who left was Mark Braille. Now, Braille started ringing the alarm bells in matters of possible child abuse and child sexual assault. See, Koresh counted women a woman from the age of 12. So tell me, man, how's this year's crop of freshman chicks look? <laughs> what, you're going to end up in jail sometime really soon, I know that. Um, think about that. Marriage was legal at age 14 with parental consent. He already had one legal wife, meaning under secular law, he could not have a second. If he wants to have sex with all the adult women in the compound, that's between them and their partners and Koresh, right? They're all adults. They can choose to do whatever they want. Anything under the age of 17 outside of his legal wife is a crime. Fact. No, man. No, man, i tell you. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. And he counted them as women from age 12. The young girl who ultimately testified before Congress, uh, Kiri Jewell, was 10 when he first assaulted her. Uh, no penetration was reported, but a sexual assault occurred nonetheless. Uh, it's disturbing reading in the book. It's just so disturbing. Um, and it, when Braille starts ringing these alarm bells, CPS starts their own investigation into Mount Carmel on the allegations of child abuse. But nothing other came, ever came of it other than to alert the Davidians that Babylon, a.k.a. the government, was closing in on them. But while CPS investigation is ongoing, concurrently at this time, a UPS delivery man is make, makes a report to ATF that one of the packages he was delivering to an auto repair shop had come open. The package, inside the package, was a bunch of grenade shells. Now, it is not illegal to own empty unarmed grenades. Uh, and the Davidians had been manufacturing firearms for resale at gun shows, which, again, is not illegal. They're manufacturing it, but they're selling it under the business license of a partner in town who was fully licensed to deal in firearms. But the ATF alleged that they were making them fully automatic, which is illegal. But really, in the eight to nine months of their investigation leading up to February 28th raid, the ATF's investigation didn't actually reveal much of anything. I mean, they, they revealed that... David knew what the law was and that he was not unwilling to break the law, but not that he had actually done so. And the warrant they got was, was not built on much evidence at all. I mean, it was all allegation. And look, I am not one of those people who says just cooperate with the police because we all know the police are fully capable of bad, right? They're human. They're just as prone to the egotistical as everybody else on the planet. But seriously, if the ATF hadn't gone in with guns blazing, if they hadn't gone full nuclear, if they had just served their warrant, it's likely the warrant would have fallen apart under the first arraignment. They had nothing. They had no evidence. They were, it, was, it was a fishing trip. It was a, it was a fishing expedition. <clears throat> they had more evidence on the child sexual assault allegations and the CPS investigations for child abuse than there were violations of Okay, I have a typo in there. <laughs> then there was violations of the National Firearms Act of 34 and 86, respectively. So knowing there was scant evidence of wrongdoing, I mean, 
knowing how to reconfigure a firearm from semi to fully automatic is not illegal. Only actually doing it is illegal. I mean, lots of people know how to do, know how to do illegal things. Knowledge is power. It's not a violation of the law yet. They're working on that. They're working on it. All right. Don't, don't worry. They, they are still working out all the ways they can make 1984 a blueprint, blueprint for reality, but they haven't done it yet. So just having that knowledge is not illegal. Only doing it is. Why wouldn't the Davidians just let them serve their warrant? It's a valid question, right? I mean, if they literally haven't done anything wrong, why wouldn't they just let the warrant be served and let the courts sort it out? Well, remember Ruby Ridge? This actually is highly relevant. Um, for the youngsters watching who, oh my God, the youngsters watching, give me a moment while I mourn my youth. Hold on. Oh my God. In August of 1992, the ATF attempted to serve a failure to appear warrant on Randy Weaver on a charge of having sawed off a shotgun. Ten days later, the Weaver's, Weaver's wife and 14-year-old son were dead as a result of a government sharpshooter. The Davidians did not agree with Weaver's personal stance. All right, Randy Weaver was not necessarily in. I, I haven't done a whole lot of research on here, so I don't want to. I don't want to mess it up too badly. But uh, he was known to have connections to the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a white supremacist group. And the Davidians were very much not that. They, they were all inclusive, all welcoming. They had people from all ethnicities and backgrounds in their compound. So they didn't agree with that. But they were horrified that the government could just swing in and shoot innocent people for a failure to appear warned. Right? I mean, that's harsh to the nth degree, all right? It was big news. A large chunk of America were just as horrified as the Davidians by that one. When the ATF rolls up on Mount Carmel on February 28, 1993, in their cattle cars with guns out, the Davidians had every reason to believe that this was the end times that Koresh had prophesied, okay? That's exactly what they believed. Um, so this is why they didn't just let the warrant be served. They, they had every reason to believe the government was literally coming to kill them which is what happened, ironically. Now, no one actually knows who started the two-hour firefight that day. Two hours. Two hours they were shooting at each other. The surviving Davidians say it was the ATF. The ATF says it was the Davidians. Both sides have ample reason to claim it, claim like not it for, for having started this shit show. However, one thing, the, Par uh, the Paramount Plus show was actually pretty good. All right, as far as it goes, it was mostly accurate. They had to make some brevity things, but overall it was pretty damn good in, as, as an overarching umbrella for the events of Waco. Uh, and one of the things they got very accurate was this newsman driving on the road that day trying to locate Mount Carmel to be present for when the raid went down. And that newsman, who can be considered an unbiased witness, right? He's got no skin in this game. Hell, the ATF is already mad at them because they had printed out their Sinful Messiah series. And... Uh, they thought, oh, well, that's going to totally ruin the surprise, right? That newsman said that the Davidians fired first. And he, he's unbiased. He, he's got no skin in this game. He's just there to report the news. And this was, you know, back before the news became butt buddies with the government. So he says the Davidians fired first. What is definitely known is the element of surprise was lost. The, the ATF leaders knew the element of surprise was lost. Like, literally, the only reason they did not call off the raid was ego. 
Right. That that dramatic bit where um, John Leguizamo's character is like, no, they know you're coming. Stop. And the guy's like, no, I never heard you say that. That That's Paramount Plus being all dramatic and stuff to make the ATF look worse than they really were, which they don't need to look worse than they already were. They look pl- pl- plenty bad in this shit show. They didn't need help looking bad from Paramount Plus. Trust me. Um, but they definitely knew the surprise was lost. They should have called off the raid. They didn't. Now, regardless of the truth of the matter as to who fired first, this launched a 51-day siege that ended in a rather spectacular fireball on April 19, 1993, and the deaths of 76 Davidians. There were 53 adults and 21 children, two infants, who were born during the final conflagration. Their mothers went into stress labor and basically died almost instantly. So, um, ponder that for a moment here while I continue to get drunk, because that is truly horrifying. Now, about that fireball, right? There are three popular theories as to what caused it, and almost all of them acknowledge that the CS gas used on April 19th was a contributing factor. Uh, CS gas is a tear gas that causes severe irritation to the eyes and respiratory tract and can cause chemical burns on contact with the skin. It is harsh stuff. It is also flammable. So the first theory, and... After reading this book, I have to admit it. Actually, even before reading this book, I have to admit this theory is unlikely, is that the FBI deliberately set the fire. All right? I don't think it was deliberate. Not not if the FBI said it, it wasn't deliberate. Uh, If it was deliberate to try and flush them out, they would have had the fire department on standby to put out the fire. And fire is the most around and find out of all elements. It is wholly unpredictable. Setting a fire deliberately would be extraordinarily stupid from the FBI's point of view. And I, the reason I don't think it was deliberate on their end is because, again, they had no fire trucks on standby. They had to get the fire trucks in from town to put that shit out. The second theory, which is really likely, is that this was accidental. Uh, the CS gas didn't help, but to be perfectly fair, Mount Carmel was a tinderbox well before the siege. It was made of shoddy wood paneling, it had no insulation. The tanks that have been pumping the CS gas in also knocked over the Davidians' Coleman lanterns, adding more fuel to the floor. And remember, the raid started at like 9 a.m. And the fire didn't start for like two or three hours. So essentially, the flammable CS gas and the spilled kerosene is soaking into this already dry wood for several hours before a spark is lit. And it's just this accelerant all over the place. Additionally, as a means of trying to insulate against the cold, because it was a cold winter in Waco, the Davidians had placed hay bales against the walls, which were also being soaked with this CS gas and kerosene. Hay, on its own, is highly flammable, never mind the addition of accelerants. Any spark could have set this off, and the Davidians were firing at the FBI from inside. One hot load would have created enough spark to set it off. It was that bad. Now on the firing that day. Um, the FBI denies having fired any shots at the Davidians on April 19, 1993. And while they did fire some military rounds into the compound, that's been definitively proven, they were used early in the day, several hours before the fire started. So it actually is very unlikely that those military rounds caused the fire. Uh, I, I tend towards skepticism on the matter of, oh no, it was not I, when it comes from people who are trying to avoid more trouble for themselves by saying, I didn't shoot that person. Um, but, but I actually believe the FBI when they said they didn't fire that day, and here's, here's why. This, this comes down to basic logic, right? The FBI who approached the building were in tanks. Literal tanks. 
The small arms fire the Davidians were using had no chance of penetrating the tanks. So there's no earthly reason for the FBI to have fired back. I mean, why would they have needed to leave the effective cover of an armored tank to plink back at targets that would have moved while they were opening the hatch? Um, and the rest of the FBI team was well beyond range of fire. They were back from the tanks. They weren't engaging in this. But the Davidians, seeing this as a final assault, had every reason to fire. So accidental conflagration from a hot round shot by the Davidians is likely. I think that's a strong possibility for what happened that day. And the truth is we're never going to know, right? We're never going to know what happened, what caused it to go up. We can only speculate based on what we, on like after action reports, basically. Um, the third theory is that the Davidians set the fire on purpose, and this was basically a cultic suicide was the end game all along. It's not impossible. That's just as plausible. But Gwyn proposes a fourth theory. And after reading this book, I can see where his logic is really sound on this one. Um, the Davidians did set the fire intentionally, but not as an intentional group suicide. Uh, putting aside his creepy pensions for young girls, Koresh was well-versed in the Bible. He genuinely had that shit memorized, all right? And Koresh and his followers had absolute faith in Koresh's interpretation of the Bible. So Gwyn proposes that the fire was set to protect the Davidians. I mean, can you imagine any more profound proof of God's will than a literal wall of fire that saves you while driving your enemies back? If they had actually lived through that conflagration, my God, the man would literally be running the world right now, even as we speak. Literally. Because they'd be like, holy God saved them from that. I'm feeling God didn't want him in charge. Now, supporting this theory that this was Koresh trying to actually save his followers is that even as the tanks were plowing through the door, Koresh was working on his interpretation of the Seven Seals, um, a manuscript that made it out of the compound with survivor Ruth Riddle uh, and eventually made its way to James Tabor and J. Phillips Arnold. Now, these two gentlemen are biblical scholars. They're, they're, uh, at least one of them is represented on the Paramount Plus show talking to the radio guy. I don't remember his name. Um, but they ultimately published it as the David Koresh Manuscript Exposition of the Seven Seals. And in their introduction to this work, they wrote, quote, Regardless of one's evaluation of the content, one point is clear. In a short time, under most trying circumstances, David Koresh had produced a rather substantial piece of work, end quote. That's true, right? In about a week, he wrote out a butt-ton of stuff on his interpretation of the Seven Seals. Um... This book was good, but at least one hanging. And, and not in the sense that the story is unfinished. Obviously it finished, right? It, it essentially ended in a blaze of horror on April 19th, 1993. Uh, there's been fallout. Militia activity rose substantially following the Waco tragedy. Uh, Timothy McVeigh is well known to have used Waco as his excuse for the Oklahoma City bombing. Although, oh, I should have put this in my write-out. I think it was the sheriff of Waco, but it might have been one of the survivors who said... People are going to do bad things regardless. They're just using this as an excuse to do it. I'm paraphrasing very badly here because the quote was quite good. I should have written it down. I didn't. Anyways. Um, so Timothy McVeigh, militia activity. But basically what leaves you hanging is there really are no good guys and no bad guys in this, right? 
I mean, it's easy to say the Davidians were brainwashed cultists, you know, stupid redneck hicks who didn't know the Bible is only allegory, blah, 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 whatever bullshit you want to spin out there to justify yourself as feeling high and mighty for not falling under a cult's way. But if you'll remember back in November, 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 when I read Cults Inside and Out by Rick Allen Ross, anyone can fall prey to a cult leader. The Davidians were not stupid people. I mean, not by a long shot. Their ranks included PhDs and Harvard-educated lawyers. They were not stupid. They were people of faith. Faith is not illegal. Firearms are not illegal. Both of these are protected by the Constitution. So, on one hand, you've got the Davidians, who you can feel really bad for, but um, remember David and his, his liking for the little girls. Right? Creepy. Wrong. Then there's the ATF. Gwynn does a credible job painting them as, re- as like the red-headed stepchild of federal agencies. They were underfunded and undermanned. I, uh, I sort of think all federal agencies should be as underfunded and undermanned as the 1990s ATF was. Hell, they weren't even technically a law enforcement agency. In the 1990s, they were a regulatory body. They, were, they fell under the Treasury Department. Uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms are all legal. So basically they were regulating to make sure that the people who were engaging with these things legally, which is why nobody likes them, right? Everybody likes alcohol. I like alcohol. Everybody likes, well, okay, not everybody likes tobacco. Not everybody likes firearms. Not everybody likes alcohol, but still, all three of those things are legal. And this might garner some sympathy for them, right? They were just trying to do their jobs to the best of their ability, as underfunded as they were. But honestly... Seriously. This entire operation from the beginning of the investigation through to his brutal, bloody confusion con- conclusion was so ham-fisted and backwards. Reading through the book, I felt like Captain Hindsight. Who's Captain Hindsight? Captain Hindsight, the hero of the modern age. Once known as Jack Brolin, a reporter for the National News, the hero was born when a freak accident gave him the amazing power of extraordinary hindsight. From toxic spills to unjust wars, there is no task too large for Captain Hindsight. I mean, I have zero, zero tactical experience, but I could think of like a dozen different ways this investigation could have been better. The arrest of Koresh could have been better. The siege could have been better. And they, they should have had religious scholars advising the team from the start. They should have had somebody on hand saying, okay, we have this religious group. This is what they believe. We need to know how to counteract this. They should not have set up an all-male team on, across the road. They should have set up a man and a woman, right? Far less intrusive. They should have set them up about you know seven months before they were ready to go in so they could get as much information as they could. They set them up like two months before. Um, and the, the Davidians absolutely knew that the people across the street were government agents watching them. Fucking weird. Um, because of the way the compound was built, it was all by hand, all on private land. There were no building plans, no building permits. They had no idea of what the layout of the building was, so they didn't know that all of the women and children sheltered in a bunker and then were essentially cooked from the outside when the compound lit up. And they could have embedded agent as a believer. It would have taken longer, but they would have known that the members were all armed all at the time. 
they would have known I mean, not just that the weapons were kept in central storage, which is what was reported to them by Mark Braille. Their their intel was nine months out of date when they went when they before they even started the investigation. Their intel was like nine months out of date. And as soon as CPS started their investigation, the rules changed, and all the adults started carrying constantly. And the ATF knew none of this because they were so underfunded and undermanned. And rather than tag in a better funded agency like the FBI, they wanted their own win to counteract the Ruby Ridge shit show. And Waco was the result. The only true innocents here are the children. And it's easy to say, why didn't the parents send the kids out to be safe? Right? And, and some of the kids were, right? We know that some of the kids were sent out. Um, Koresh did not send any of his children out. That's very telling. That's among the reasons why, like, the, the one really true bad guy here is Koresh. He kept all of his kids with him. They were the ultimate bargaining chip. Um, ironic that he was supposed to have 24 children who are going to be the elders of the next tribe, and um, all 16 of them died in the conflagration. Whether or not, I mean, the parents had, uh, this isn't just Koresh, right? I mean, it's easy to say, why didn't the parents send the kids out to be safe? It's easy to blame the parents. Just kind of share that around, right? But would you? I mean, seriously, think about it. You think the devil himself is knocking at your door, trying to take your children away from you. Raise them in a method that is at conflict with your God and your faith. Would you send your children out to the devil to raise? And it's not just Koresh, right? The other parents had agency too. And whether this is a cult or not, they still ultimately chose to stay and to keep their children with them. And one very important point, not made in the book, but still just as relevant. All It's made in the Paramount Plus thing, and it's still accurate. All modern established religions started as a cult. Christianity was a cult operating on the outside during the Roman deities range. Reign. Islam was a cult when it started, so was Judaism. If they had been left to their own lives, to live their own lives, who's to say the Davidians wouldn't have done great good in this world? Even with David as a leader. Creepy, pervy bastard. I have to leave a little for the husband. He likes to try the cocktails. I enjoy Gwen's writing. He, he's, I've read his books before, and he is an excellent investigative journalist, and he's well-schooled at keeping his own opinion out of it and reporting just the facts as he finds them. He reports as accurately as one can, especially 30 years after the fact, uh, hoping that time kind of gives us all a little distance and perspective. As tragic as these events were, and I, I find it interesting that the end message the world has taken away from this, okay, the end message the Americans have taken away from this is that you can't trust the government. And this has in some fashion resonated with members of both the left and the right. Right? I mean, he talks about militia being on the rise, but you, how else do you explain the rise of Antifa and BLM? And ultimately, they think they're the ones who should be in charge of the government because they don't trust the existing government. And if only more people would understand this, we might get a few more events reminiscent of Thomas Jefferson's famous quote, the uh, tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. I am not advocating violence against the government or violence against anybody. But remember, guys, your first move is always the ballot box. November 2024 is going to be here far faster than you think it will be. So choose your candidates wisely. That's it for this week. I'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye.